Well, good morning to you all and well, good afternoon in America to those watching from there. Uh, hi, Bob. Uh, planning for the future is never an exact science, is it? You know, things don't ever go to plan. Well, sometimes they do, but not quite the way we think. Many of us know that. Uh, take the advertising campaign I heard about uh, during the week planned by Pepsi some years ago. Uh, they were going to market Pepsi big time in China in the late 90s. And after a number of months of doing it, they couldn't work out, despite all their hard work and the money they poured into it, sales were falling off rather than taking off. Then someone pointed out to them that their international slogan at the time was, come alive with Pepsi. But it actually meant something quite different in Mandarin. It translated as, brings your ancestors back to life. <laughs> they changed it. Anyway, <laughs> well, Paul's concern as we finish Philippians today is that the Christians and we as Christians and the Philippian Christians plan for the future. Uh, at the end of chapter 3, he reminded us last week that we're citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, we're to live for the day when Jesus will return and every knee will bow. And we saw uh, how Jesus is going to come and transform us on that last day into something utterly, gloriously amazing. And he says, so in the meantime, what should you do? You should press, hold, press on to take hold of that for which Christ has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. And he says that uh, as a result of our future and our citizenship in heaven, we should stand firm as Christians. Uh, that's how chapter 4 begins. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, you can tell he loves them in this matter, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, if you've been following along or you're familiar with Philippians, you, you might recall that standing firm has actually been Paul's key concern all along. Uh, Adam showed us in chapter 1, verse 27, the key verse of the whole letter. What was that? Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or an absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. But you get to the final chapter, and it's been this great letter, stand firm, and you read that thing out, and thanks, Peter, for reading that, but it can sound like a whole lot of PSs. You know, the, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention I've got some space on the scroll. How about I also put in some other stuff? Uh, but actually, they're not afterthoughts at all. They're not disconnected from this idea of standing firm. Because chapter 4 is all about the hurdles, the pitfalls, if you like, which will stop Christians doing that, stop us standing firm and pressing on. These are the things that can easily trip us up. They might not seem like much as if they're huge obstacles, but they're deceptively big and dangerous ones, which continue to bring whole churches down today as they have through the centuries. But it's not just a list of hurdles. Paul's also giving us the tactics we need to be able to leap over them and to push on, to keep running. The tactics we need to stand firm together to the end. 
Now, does anyone here, I think of all the congregations today, someone here may know who George Graham is. Uh, uh, he's still alive. He's an old man. Uh, <laughs> he, he was the manager of Arsenal Football Club in England. There you go. No reason that you would know him in England uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, Arsenal hadn't won anything for 20 or so years and he took over in 86 and in 87 they won the FA Cup and then in 89 they won the English Championship. Uh, he was interviewed a year ago and they asked him, well, what did you do different to all the previous? I mean, you, Arsenal had the best, biggest money, the star players, and they just couldn't get it together. How, what made the difference when you came? And he said, I just insisted that they follow my tactics. They just never listened to the manager before, <laughs> right? And I, I, I said, listen to the tactics, do them, and we'll win. And they, the reporter said, well, there had to be more to it than that. So he chased down the players from the team. And he said, well, what was it that you think was the key to the success of the, the, the squad in those days? And one by one, they all said the same thing. We just followed the manager's tactics to the letter. He insisted we, and we followed them and we won. They were completely confident that he knew what he was on about. They trusted him and they won. And I reckon that's the approach we should take as we come to this last chapter of Philippians, come with that kind of confidence. You want to succeed at standing firm in your faith. You want to succeed at living a life worthy of the gospel. You want to be part of a church that stands firm in one spirit and contends as one man for the gospel in this dark world so that we shine like the glorious stars out in the country on a dark night. You want that? Well, know the hurdles, learn the tactics, and you'll be prepared for the future. Follow them. Well, the first hurdle that uh, we come across is division. Uh, it's a, a divided church will not stand firm as one and will cause its members to stumble, even those who aren't involved in the fight. Right? just wrecks everything. And you can see that uh, it was something that was happening in the church of Philippi. Verse 2, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche, uh, two ladies in the congregation, to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, we're not told very much about these two ladies, who they were. Uh, we do know they're not new converts, still coming to groups with their faith, and, you know, so it's not just the, they're just worldly people. Um, they're they're long-standing members of the church. They weren't false Christians either. Paul says in verse 3 that they were his co-workers in the gospel, they, people he loved, and, and he, he knew they were believers, and, you know, he stood firm with him when they were working together. They contended at his side, and he's thankful to God for them both. And yet they'd had this falling out. We're not told what they had fallen out over. But judging by the kind of things uh, you witness, and I've witnessed over the years as a minister that Christians fall out over, it might not have started out over very much at all. Who's going to be in charge of the catering? What colour should the church fence be when we put it in? Um, at St Matthew's Windsor, where I uh, first started as an Anglican minister, uh, before my time in the mid-1800s, there'd been a huge fight that had lasted more than 10 years and involved bishops and lawyers being called in. Uh, it started, and it was over, 
the fact that the minister used a black bookmark during the season of Lent in the church lectern Bible instead of purple. And they had sued him and the parish council, like it just went on and on for decades and that is all the parish council records for 10 years was this fight. And it ripped the church apart. But whatever the cause, Paul knew this kind of breakdown always affects more than just the, the people involved, even if it's just one or two of them. It threatened the ability of the whole church to stand together for the gospel. And you can tell that from the fact that he's calling these two ladies out publicly by name. What an embarrassing thing to be read out in church. You get this letter from the apostle and all of a sudden you're named as you and you, right? Aaron and Val, just stop it. <laughs> They're not having a fight that I know of. Anyways, <laughs> Paul's in prison in another country and he's heard about it. And the letter's written to the whole church to be read out and so it's no secret. And maybe you say, well, so what? Can't Christians just, who don't get along, just sit on opposite sides of the aisle? Can't one of them just come to a later service and, and just be done with it and never sort it out? But Paul's answer is no. No, because living worthy of the gospel means standing firm together as one. So even just a few disunited members hamper the whole church and the advance of the gospel will suffer. And if you've ever experienced it, you know that's exactly what it does and how churches shut their doors eventually because of this kind of fight you know someone new walks into church and they sense the chilly atmosphere they're like oh, something's wrong here they can just tell something's not right and they don't come back members of the church are often asked to take sides and they're drawn into the gossip and you know well didn't you see what that person did and you just got to agree with you know um, and those who don't take sides they just get fed up after a while and leave. Uh, and, or think about the impact of the church in being able to pray together and make plans together when there's this argument that's just constant going on. It's a real hurdle that can bring churches down. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with this unity? What are the tactics we need to move on and succeed? Well, in verse 2, Paul calls on the two women at the centre of the fight to agree in the Lord. Uh, now, that's the same term he'd used several times right through the letter, but it's translated in different ways each time. I'm not quite sure why all the Bibles do it. Um, but it's the same phrase he used back in chapter 2 and verse 5, where he called on all of us to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, the same attitude as Christ Jesus. He's not saying you've got to agree on all the details. You like red and she likes blue. Well, you've got to, you know, both agree that purple's better or black, as the case may be. But <laughs> um, no, it's that you've got to have the mindset of Christ. Remember Jesus' mindset, his attitude back in chapter 2. Instead of standing on his rights, he, well, he did what? He humbled himself. He gave up all the riches of heaven to come and be a slave to us, as we heard about. He made a slave of himself to his enemies, a slave even to death, as he paid for our forgiveness with his blood. He didn't stand there with arms folded going, I'm never talking to them again. Or wait, I will if they crawl back to me and apologise for being 
because they're wrong. That's the mindset that uh, Paul calls us to have with each other, one of humility, of putting ourselves out for the other one, of saying they're better than I am and it actually doesn't matter that we work out the bookmark colour. And Paul calls these two women out publicly and he says, and I mean you two. It doesn't matter who started it. It doesn't matter who's more to blame. It doesn't even matter who's more right. You need to deal with it. And if you're in that situation yourself, be the bigger man or woman. Be the peacemaker. Go and fix it up. But Paul knows and God knows that it's not going to be just up to these two women to solve it themselves. They're going to need help. And so what's the rest of the church to do? What are the tactics for everyone else? Well, they need to not back off because we're all just too embarrassed. And the answer isn't taking sides, which only throws more fuel on the fire. But he says, get in there and help sort it out. And so Paul writes in verse 3, yes, I also ask you, true partner, uh, some nameless member who you know in the congregation, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. And also, along with Clement, you've got to get in there and help too. And also, the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. It's not just one person who's going to need to get involved. It's going to be a lot of people. The unnamed true partner guy, he has to help Clement, but also the rest of Paul's old co-workers in the church. And I take it that that could be pretty much the whole of the core membership of the church, the ones who get Jesus and are on about the gospel. And whether that help that everyone else needs to provide is to provide mediation and sit, sit them down and say, can I get you in a room, let's sort it out, or whether it's a quiet word to each of them to say, this has gone on too long, or whether it's to encourage them to think and act like Jesus, we're all called on to pitch in. Following Jesus isn't an individual sport like long jump or like the javelin. It's a team game. We're in it together. That's the first hurdle, division. And if we're going to prepare for the future, we need to learn the tactics to overcome it. Have the mindset of Christ if we're in the fight, not taking sides and not sitting back and letting it stew, but getting in and sorting it out if we're not in the fight. But there's a second hurdle, a second pitfall, which threatens to stop us standing firm and serving Jesus flat out, which is anxiety. Anxiety, worry. It's there in verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything. Now, I take it none of us can help being anxious at times. Some of us, a lot of the time. For others, it's occasionally. For some, it's a medical condition. But we're in control of our responses to it. There's obviously a lot of things going on that could have caused the church in Philippi to be anxious. Uh, what's going to happen to Paul in prison? Is he going to live? Is he going to die? Right, he planted this church. Um, but they've heard about uh, Epaphroditus, who's so desperately ill, he almost died. One of their most beloved members. This, you know, the prospect of being warned about of infiltrators coming into the church and undermining the gospel. There's the disagreement that's brewing between these key church members and, and the even more anxiety-producing, well, you've got to get in and do something about it, right? No one wants to do that. Right? Uh, it's threatening to blow out. And, and there's presumably any number of other things that each member of the church could have been personally anxious about, their job, health, 
work, grandkids, being single, whatever it might happen to be. But either way, Paul's telling us that anxiety is a killer to standing firm and living a life worthy of the gospel, contending for the gospel together. It's a real hurdle. And we know that it is. Right? Because when you're anxious, you start to lose perspective, don't you? you? It's easy to become distracted and inward looking as you focus on the problems and you start to forget stuff, even important things that you need to have in place. And then as it builds up, Christian commitment takes a back seat as doubts start to creep in about God and does he even care and, and any hope for a way forwards. Anxiety paralyzes us. And so what's the solution? What's the tactics God gives to deal with anxiety? Well, there's three parts here and they're all connected. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And to make sure we got that, he says again, I'll say it, rejoice. He says, pray and pray with thanksgiving and fill your mind with the good things of God fundamental to all that um, before things that cause anxiety come or if you're in the midst of anxiety you need to do those three things he says rejoice in the lord always i'll say it again rejoice now he doesn't mean by that just cheer up and have a stiff upper lip it's not about stoicism uh, notice it's a command this is something we can exercise our wills to decide to do notice it's a command with a focus it's not just don't worry be happy it's rejoice in something in particular what rejoice in the lord rejoice in who he is rejoice in his character his incredible humility that he's shown to you his love rejoice in his awesome power by which he created the universe and which he's able to bring all things under his control we can rejoice rejoice in the lord's work for us and in us in the way he humbly served himself the way he's promised to come again and give us a resurrection body there's so many things paul's given examples of of rejoicing in the lord there's the people he puts around us paul prays in chapter one with joy because of the partnership in the gospel that the philippians have with him notice when he says we should rejoice in the lord when should we rejoice in the Lord? Always. It's not something to do when we feel like it. It's not something to do when we've got our own way and it's not dependent on circumstances. Where was the Apostle Paul when he wrote this very command? In prison. Right? And not just one of our prisons, in a first century Roman prison where he was physically chained to the guards 24-7. And what prospect was he facing? Execution. And yet we've heard over and over again through the letter how he's able to personally rejoice in every situation, even as he calls us to rejoice. And that rejoicing, Lord, reads right into the second part of the tactics. He says, pray. Don't worry about anything, verse 6, but in everything through prayer and petition... With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. What does the person who's rejoicing in the Lord always do when they're stressed out and they're worried about something? They, they turn to God, the one they rejoice in. 
They call on him for help. And you can be sure that praying to God is not like ringing the helpline for your phone company or for your bank. You ever tried to do that? That'll produce anxiety, if anything. Yeah, you know, kind of, you know there's, <laughs> it's a world of frustration, right? There's just getting through in the first place when you put on hold for hours. And then finally you do get to talk to a real human being and uh, you've got to convince them that you are who you say you are. They don't believe you. <laughs> Right, you're going to, oh, what's your password? What's your date of birth? What's your secret word? What's, uh, is this a phone scam? I rang you for help. Right? Uh, and then finally, you get to tell them the problem and they say, well, I'm really sorry. I don't have the authority to do anything about that. I'll have to talk with the manager. Oh, just give me the manager. Right? God's not like that. We don't have to go on hold. Right? He's always listening. When he's there when we pray he knows his people by name he cares for us um, and he's got complete power to act for his people because he's the guy in charge he can do anything the guy who created the world is on your side and so pray why would you do anything else other than pray well I think Often we don't pray, do we? Why, why not? Could it be because we're too proud and, and I, I think I should be able to solve this on my own. I don't need help. I don't need God's help to do this. I can just fix it. That's a dumb thought. Or sometimes because our heads have become so overwhelmed because we haven't been rejoicing in him always and so we forget who's on hand and ready to help. And when we pray, what does Paul tell us? He says, well, pray comprehensively. You can pray about anything and everything. There's nothing in our lives and circumstances that we could not or should not pray about, even if it's something that's humanly impossible and you can't see how there could be a way forward. Paul says, pray. Ask God for it. He says, pray specifically. By prayer and petition, present your requests to God. Now, sometimes we um and err. Uh, uh, and think, well, why would God want to hear about that so we don't ask? And sometimes our prayers can be so general and vague that we wouldn't even know if God had answered them or not. Right? Please watch over us. Yeah, well, he is, and that's good, and he promises to. But what, does that, what are you asking? He says, ask. And he says, pray thankfully. Pray with gratitude. Gratitude, notice, not once the prayer has been answered the way you want it to be, which God may choose to do or not do in his wisdom, but gratitude even while you are praying. Gratitude that you have this incredible privilege of, of in the first place, of being able to come to your heavenly Father as his child. Gratitude for the gospel. Gratitude for the confidence you can have that God's sovereign over our lives. Gratitude knowing that whatever God chooses to do with this request in the end, in the answer to our prayer, it will be the exact right thing in his plans and purposes for you. And notice what the result of praying like that will be in verse 7. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God isn't 
promising to give us everything we ask for exactly the way we ask for it. He's promising something even better. A supernatural confidence which will guard our hearts and minds. We know we're at peace with God because of the gospel. We're completely safe in his hands. Nothing can separate us from his love or take away his promises or stop the future that he intends. He's not going to make a translation mistake, right, in Mandarin and say the wrong... It's, it's so freeing. It frees us from worry and frees us to get on with serving Jesus and his gospel together as one. Which is why Paul goes on in verses 8 and 9 to the third part of the tactics for dealing with anxiety... Fill your minds with the right things. Fill your minds with the things of God, with the good stuff. Verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence or if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Right, stop and pause and go, wow, that's great. Let me think about that for a while. Do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. We all know we should make changes to our diets. Well, I know I should make changes to mine. Anyway, uh, we know that if we eat rubbish food, we're going to get, uh, we're going to suffer. It will flow out into our emotional health and our physical health and other areas of life. Same thing happens in our thought life. You put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. And the good news is you can choose what you think about. Lots of things you don't have choice over. You can choose what you think about or not. So what are you putting in your head? What are you filling it with what are you dwelling on you are allowed to turn off the goggle box right you can press off right i'm not saying you should but what are you filling your head with what's the messages that are coming at you constantly what are you dwelling on what's the worldview behind the shows think about that and if it's not helping you walk with jesus turn it off a thought of anger comes in your head, a thought of bitterness, a thought of whatever pops in. We can choose to refuse it and not dwell on it. And instead we can choose an excellent thought, a pleasing thought, a pure thought, a just thought. We can choose to think about Christ and what he's done and what he's doing in the world and how he's growing people. And, and the more we actually we build that sort of stuff into our program, getting into the word, getting into good conversations with others and sharing how good it is to be a Christian, sharing our faith with others, the, the more we're able to rejoice in the Lord because we can go, well, actually, I had this great conversation today. Well, I read this. God encouraged me in this way. And, and the more you can thank God when you pray to him for your concerns. And again, what's the result? Verse 9, the God of peace will be with us. Right? Pray with thanksgiving and the peace will come. Fill your head with the right stuff and the peace of God will be, God of peace will be with you. Well, that can't brings us to the third and final hurdle, which is discontentment. One of the reasons Paul wrote the letter to the church of Philippi in the first place was a thank you letter for their help 
and their partnership in the gospel. And you can see that in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you've renewed your care for me. And he goes on to say what that care is. A big check's just arrived. <laughs> All right? uh, verse 18, they've taken a huge collection and sent money to him, whether to help with his lawyer fees or prepare for the next mission trip if he gets out, not sure. But he's really glad for them. But he almost goes out of his way to say much more than thank you. He takes the opportunity to describe his own contentedness. Why? I presume because Paul knows how discontentment could so easily divert these Christians from their commitment to standing firm and following Jesus. And so verse 11 and 12, I don't say this out of need, I didn't need the money, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed, hungry, in abundance or in need. Paul's learned to be content no matter what state he finds himself in, rich, poor, starving, or having just come off next weekend's Lebanese feast with Ann Porter on Saturday. I hope you're coming to it. Get in for the food afterwards, even if you're not coming for the cooking lesson. But anyway... But, He's learned to be content with whatever the situation. And, and I think that's a real challenge to us. How many of us would say we're completely content at the moment? Uh, many of us are feeling the pinch with everything costing so much more and we can find ourselves moaning about it to whoever will listen. And lots of people are willing to listen because they want to moan about it as well. <laughs> right? Um, we're often discontent about our jobs, our bodies, our health, our homes, our car, our relationships. We read ads. We walk down that middle aisle of Aldi, which is always a risky business. Uh, because all of a sudden, I know my life will be better if I just got this thing that I'd never heard of before, it even existed. And all these things can absorb endless time and energy and divert us from fixing our eyes on Jesus and following him to the end. But Paul says there's another way, verse 13. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a great verse, isn't it? He's not, it's not a promise that you'll become Superman or Superwoman or that you'll be able to learn fluent Nepalese in the next two weeks or the mortgage will be paid off next month. No, he's saying whether rich or poor, in jail or free, beaten black and blue or laughing with his friends as they ride to the next mission trip, he's able to be completely okay with what's happening. Now, that did not come naturally to Paul. And it's not because he's so super spiritual that he's in a different league to the rest of us. No, he says it's something he had to learn. He says it twice, verse 11 and verse 12, I had to learn this. But he says it's also something that Jesus enabled in him. It's something that Jesus' strength worked in him. And because you can learn it, and it's because it's enabled by Jesus, it's entirely possible for any Christian to be content as well. So what's the secret to being content? What's the key to dealing with our discontentment? Well, surely it's to be more concerned for the gospel and for God's glory, more concerned for the salvation of others than for your own comfort. 
Think back to chapter 1 where Paul in prison can say, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me is actually advanced the gospel. Right? He's not moaning, oh, it's terrible, the food, the gruel they bring in, the fly in my swill. You know? <laughs> uh, or again, verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. They kill me, but I hope Christ is honoured. You see, Paul sat down and he said to himself, all that matters in the end is Jesus' glory and the advance of the gospel. And I wonder if we've ever, ever said that to ourselves. And I wonder if we say that to ourselves often. We ought to because discontent is just so much part of our fallen human nature. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had everything God could give them. The very best, but they were discontent and wanted more. And because one of the keys to contentment is having a right attitude to money, then in verses 17 and 18, Paul encourages them to continue to be generous givers. Because he says generosity is actually good for the giver. There in verse 17, not that I seek a gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing in your account. I want you to be storing up treasures in heaven, as Jesus would say. Paul's concerned that they continue to give generously, not for his benefit, I mean, give to a different missionary, a different cause or whatever, but so that it's credited to their account in heaven. God's been overwhelmingly generous to them, and so Christians are to be generous now. And you can be when you're content, because it doesn't matter whether I've got a lot or a little. Three hurdles. Division, anxiety, discontentment. And the danger of each one of them is they take our focus off heaven, off God, focus off Jesus, and they focus us instead on the here and now and therefore make us ineffective in the Christian life and serving Jesus. And they, they wreck Christian lives, they wreck churches. But here's the tactics to overcome them. God's warned us so that we can know what to do. Right, to have the mindset of Christ, to rejoice in the Lord, pray with thanksgiving, fill our mind with the good things and to learn this secret of contentment as we, we work out what really matters in the world is Jesus and his name going forward. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you that you are a God who supplies all of our needs according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We want to commit our lives to you and we pray, please, that you would forgive us for when we have let anxiety and discontentment and disunity uh, in and, and, and it's caused us to stumble. Father, we pray that we'll root those things out and we'll know how to respond to them in the future, that we we'll learn to rejoice in you and look to you, to pray to you, to thank you, to fill our minds with the good things that you give and to learn the contentment of being um, thankful in every situation because we know that you are the giver of all good things and whatever we have is because you have willed it for us. And so pray, we pray, please, that you'll help us to love you more and more and keep our eyes on Jesus and not stumble over these things.
We pray in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.